Welcome to At The Organ. Hi, I'm Brent Johnson. This week on At The Organ, we're talking about the organist and composer Paul Mons. In late 2018, in preparation for a celebration of the centennial of Paul Mons' birth in Cleveland, Ohio in 1919, I was asked to put together some pieces about him. I realized I knew very little about this musician, so to find out more, I found the people who knew him and worked with him. This resulted in four audio segments that aired on the radio in St. Louis in 2019, but you probably haven't heard them, so I've worked them together into one podcast for you today. Scott Hislop is the author of a biography of Mons titled The Journey Was Chosen. He tells us about Mons' early life. Uh, the, the home he grew up in consisted of older family members. Paul was an only child. There were no other siblings in the family beside him. He grew up not far from the Holt Camp organ factory. As a small child, he, he, he would talk about he would go walking by and he'd be peering, peering up into the windows to see what was going on in there. And uh, as the, the legend has it that Walter Holt Camp Sr., the founding member of the firm, uh, came by one day and sort of swatted him away uh, for, for peeking in his windows. Paul's father was an amateur musician. Uh, He loved to sing, he loved to play keyboard, and uh, the family had a small pipe organ in the house that his dad had cobbled together um, through various parts in that. He he was told he could have time at the organ if he started taking piano lessons. As as a young boy, um, he took piano lessons, organ lessons, and music theory lessons from a gentleman by the name of Henry Markworth. Markworth was one of the church musicians in the the Cleveland area at um, Trinity Lutheran. Paul went on to study at what is today Concordia Seminary in River Forest, Illinois, outside of Chicago. After graduating from there, he taught in Lutheran schools and churches in Wisconsin and Minnesota. Further education took place at Northwestern University, and in 1957 he took the position of cantor at Mount Olive Lutheran Church in Minneapolis. A Fulbright scholarship took him to Belgium and Germany, where he was introduced to a new style of hymn playing and improvised accompaniment and introduction. His recitals often started and ended with a hymn, and audiences found these to be their favorite parts. Before long, Paul was performing hymn festivals, which were full programs of nothing but hymns with Paul's unique improvised introductions and full audience participation. The organist John Ferguson tells us about Mons Hymn Festivals. Yeah, and it's, it's, I think, generally agreed among people in this country who are really interested in hymnology and hymnody that Paul sort of refined and developed the idea of a hymn festival. 
the discovery of his great ability as an improviser, his interest in hymns, his interest in exegeting, unpacking the meaning of the hymn with its music. There had always been gatherings when we'd get together and in a more formal way, not just holler out hymn numbers out of a hymnal, but in a more, a more formal way, structure an event built around the singing of hymns. And Paul's idea was to take readings, scripture, poetry, and so he sort of built that kind of a um, experience. Paul was the, the pioneer. David Sherwin is the current cantor of Mount Olive Lutheran in Minneapolis, and he's the artistic director of the National Lutheran Choir. David studied with Paul Mons, and he continues the tradition of the hymn festival today all over the country. He tells us about his first experience at such an event. Uh, I think the life-changing thing for me was uh, in my junior year of college, I was planning to be a high school choir teacher. You know, that was my goal, and I was in a music ed program at Augsburg College and a friend dragged me to a hymn festival at Paul Mons, which I had never heard. Even though I'd taken lessons from him periodically, I just never heard him do a hymn festival. And uh, so that was a time when I was also in a rock band. <laughs> so um, what I heard happen was just mind-boggling because the introductions were were amazing. They were so exciting and enticing and the singing was so strong. Um, I remembered all the verses of Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past from that experience. <laughs> and I couldn't tell you three of the songs I played in the band five nights a week. <laughs> uh, there was just something that was very profound about it. But I saw these two worlds coming together. 
the learning to play the organ and improvisation, which is what we were doing in the rock group. Um, but it was, it was controlled improvisation. It was better than just willy-nilly. Um, it was very informed improvisation, in fact. Attending a hymn festival led by Paul Mons back in those days, you just you'd you'd get so drawn into it you'd leave and go now what happened I can't remember the specifics but you know you were brought somewhere different um, in a good way. In the 1950s, Mons was given leave to study in Belgium with Floor Painters, and then in Germany with Helmut Walsh. These experiences broadened his horizons and shaped the way his music and improvisations were formed. David Cherwin gives us some examples of how specific musical ideas appear in Mons's modern music. He uses the movements of the Partita on St. Anne as an example. Um, talked frequently about how music can convey pictures or, or images that would come from the texts of the hymns that we're interpreting. So uh, his improvisations weren't just out of the blue uh, or just exercises in how many different things can you do. They always came from the text, but he employed practices that come from history when um, composers, especially church organists, started doing that. Of course, chief among them is J.S. Bach. And in that time, Bach, uh, in the Baroque era, made use of little motifs that would convey some kind of affect or mood. And one of them that Paul Mons uses in his is this. And what that is is a Baroque figure for joy. And you'll find it in Bach's Oberbüchlein. Or another one is this one. That's another affect for joy. And so he once gave me the assignment of coming up with Now Thank We All Our God that depicts joy using that Baroque affect figure. And this is, so this is what I came up with. And also the forms itself. Um, in the second movement of his partita, he makes use of an ornamented chorale, um, where the entrances first imitate the melody. And then the melody comes in with ornamentation. So that's very much from the Baroque era. Uh, so that becomes kind of a paint by numbers. <laughs> depiction. And then his third movement from that is the canon, very soft, which comes from the music of Marcel Dupre. And then the presto, which is one of the most fun movements, uses the Baroque figure called the trillo, which is excitement. But uh, more importantly, what Paul Mons is doing in that movement is depicting the river. Time like an ever-rolling stream soon bears us all away. So you get this image of a babbling brook. 
Um, it really is fun, and people always smile. And we add the Zimbelstern, of course, which sort of adds the butterflies into stomach. Uh, and then a pastoral movement, which um, many Baroque composers would include as a variation that would give the image of a shepherd caring for his sheep in the field. And the text that he interprets here is like flowery fields, the nations stand pleased with the morning light. And so he gets that 6 8 back and forth. Um, in the pastoral thing. And then the finale is a classic fugue, uh, making use of that trillo figure again, but outlining the melody. So the melody is always present uh, in the subject, uh, as well as that trillo fugue. So uh, he was always pressing to learn more literature, because it's from the literature that you would learn more things to do creatively in my own music. And um, so I learned that from him. Uh, but I asked him, was this intentional? Did you learn all this in school? Uh, all these things to employ the uh, Baroque figures to create an affect? And he says, no, I just absorbed it. <laughs> because he lived so solidly in that tradition that uh, he just absorbed it. The one other thing I wanted to be sure to say about Paul was his excellence in performing of the literature. I think towards the end of his career, he was so well known and beloved as a designer and executor of hymn festivals that it was relatively rare that he would be asked to come as a guest and do a recital. When I first heard him play a recital, which was in the Episcopal Cathedral in Spokane, Washington, during an American Guild of Organists regional convention. I happened to be presenting at the convention. He was too, he did a recital. Straightforward, typical recital. I don't even remember if we sang a hymn. And it was fabulous. And he played French romantic. He played one of the Franck chorales. It was gorgeous, both from a scholarship standpoint and a musical standpoint. This man knew what he was doing. And, and I think it's important to remember that as a musician, he was wonderfully trained. Uh, when he was in Europe on the Fulbright with Flor Peters, he was studying organ music, not necessarily improvisation, although he did that too. Um, and so I, I think that's very important to note. Uh, and Paul would always talk about the fact that improvisation was a practice discipline, just like playing the literature was a practice discipline, because it wasn't magic. No, it was just plain old-fashioned hard work. You had to learn how to do it, once you learn how to do it, then you can do it. Mark Bangert worked with Paul Mons at the Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago, and he was music director of St. Luke's Evangelical Lutheran Church in Chicago, where Paul Mons later served as organist. Well, his improvisations that he published were a result of introductions to hymns. And uh, what he would do is bring to the console 
just a small sheet of paper uh, which would have maybe two measures of music with a little idea. Uh, he'd write the idea down and then sometimes he would put chordal progressions down, like, you know, one, four, five, six or something. And then from there he'd, he'd just work these things out. And they were never the same. You know, I heard one that he began at St. Luke, and then you know, a couple weeks later, I heard him here in the office working it out a little bit different. And then he would try different things till it came to a point where he was satisfied with it. Sometimes, in the service situation, they were shorter than what they were when they were public. And then the other thing he would do is a lot of registration changes. I mean, there was, there was never any two stanzas that were the same in terms of registration. Temple was always uh, the same. Uh, every stanza was the same temple. Occasionally he would play around and uh, he'd get an idea in the mid of, middle of a stanza and uh, he would introduce a counter theme, another hymn, you know. And if you listen carefully, it, was, it served as a kind of a commentary on what was going on at the moment. One other thing that uh, it was pretty regular at, I think most organists are, if they're talented, is that before the final stanza, there might be a little what we call Zwischenspiel, you know, a little, little music in between the lead you into the final stanza. Most of us first encountered the name Paul Mons as a composer of hymn preludes. However, published compositions are only a very small part of this composer's life work. In fact, Paul Mons never set out to be a composer. Um, I mean, I think people wanted, wanted to be able to see this music and, and uh, probably is, is the reason why he was pushed to publish. Um, but once that started, he enjoyed that. He, he liked to see his stuff in print. And he was very proud of that. I never got the impression that Paul started out by saying, I want to be a published composer. And I don't ever think that was part of his desire. That, that he got things published and that, that people bought them and played them, I think, pleased him a great deal. Um, and he was excited by that. But I don't think he ever started out with that. Kind of sense of vocation that you want to be a published 
I asked him once, how did you start doing all of this? How did you get started? Because it wasn't the norm. He said, well, it was a pastor I worked with at Mount Olive who encouraged me to do what I felt. Don't have to worry about accountability except for God. And you do what you feel and what the text is calling you to do. And so he'd do a little bit more. And he said the congregation responded with even more vigorous singing. So he'd do more. And so uh, you get this circle of energy where he throws things out at them that's kind of uh, imaginative. And then they sing back even more vigorously. And it just keeps growing. He taught me how to do arrive at introductions uh, by reading all of the words of a hymn and seeing if there was one phrase or a line of text that would jump out uh, that would encapsulate the meaning of the whole hymn and if there was something I could do to bring it out musically um, like the babbling brook you know I could have some bright things flowing down this way or um, something uh, like Bach has in his Orgelbüchlein uh, through Adam's fall and the, the pedal keeps going boom, boom, as if continuously stumbling. You know, so things like that we can bring out musically from the text. Um, and so you come up with that little kernel of an idea and then combine it with the hymn tune itself somehow. And improvisation gets born and then refined when I come back to it. It gets, it gets to that next level and eventually it does settle into being pretty good. And I think that's what happened with Paul Mons. Uh, and then he would use the phrase he was persuaded to publish them. <laughs> I don't know if that's... <laughs> Actually, that could very well be the case, that somebody said, you got to write this down. You know, I've, I've heard that once in a while, and they were hugely popular, these improvisations, once he started publishing them. I don't think he ever imagined for himself what happened in his career. I don't think, you know, at some point he sat down and said, no, I want to get all this stuff published. That It's just sort of serendipitous. It just happened. One of his good friends, the theologian Martin Marty, probably in the last part of the 20th century, one of the most respected Lutheran theologians taught at the University of Chicago. Marty, as he always was called, Marty and I were talking one day about my career. And then I finished sort of explaining to him how where I started out and how I was at Central Lutheran and then St. Olaf College found me and all this kind of stuff. And, and so I was all done and I was sort of sitting there going, you know, it's, it's amazing, you know, how this all worked out. And Marty interrupted me and said, John, what, what other people call luck, Christians call God's constancy. And I've never forgotten that. I think that was very profound, but also I think for Paul, Paul would have said, Amen. While Paul Mons served the church and his congregation, his family was always most important to him, and it began with his wife, Ruth Mons, whom he met in college in River Forest, Illinois. They were a team. Ruth was extremely interested in what he was doing and very supportive of what he was doing. She was also an elegant hostess. A, she's a saint. <laughs> B, she was a beauty. See, her personality really fit well with his. She could soothe anybody, and if he got a little bit antsy, she could soothe him. A good hostess, um, entrepreneurial, to the outside observer, a, a dazzlingly complimentary marriage. He was never condescending toward her, and he never relied on her for things he couldn't do. Complimentarity would be the word I would use. Ruth was very elegant. 
and she was um I would say she was just she was a very she always knew the right thing to say you know she whatever was going on in your life she seemed to know about it and she would just know quite exactly what to say in just such an eloquent way she had the gift of word she loved being with kids and was a very kind and thoughtful person but never told untruths (laughs) in the sacristy uh, Ruth's brother Mueller Pastor Mueller died and they had four young children and uh, his wife the, the widow was not well either, and in, a year later she had died as well. So these children were adopted by Paul and Ruth. They had three of their own, and so then they were seven children. And I think had Ruth not been the way she was, uh, with Paul traveling so much, it, that just would have been very, very difficult, but she loved being around children. But uh, Ruth uh, just had that warm, gracious sense, and it, extremely intelligent. Ruth was adamant that it, her name would come first, Ruth and Paul Mons, because it was always Paul Mons, and it was never Ruth Mons until marriage, you know, so <laughs> it's just kind of a funny thing with her. But they're they're together in the columbarium now. They're um, interred in the same niche as it should be. In 1953, their three-year-old son, John, was diagnosed with double pneumonia. His condition worsened, and one evening the doctors told the Mons family there was nothing they could do but pray. And they did, as did members of his choir who gathered in the choir room of Mount Olive Lutheran to pray for the health of young John. Ruth Mons wrote down some words, a paraphrase of the Book of Revelation, and she gave them to Paul, who later set them to music. That anthem, E'en So Lord Jesus, Quickly Come, has become one of the most sung American anthems having sold over a million copies, and it's been performed all around the world, including in King's College, Cambridge, Christmas Eve service.
This single piece of music, which was enough to ensure Paul Mons's place as a notable American composer, began as a prayer for his sick son, a son who lived through the night and overcame his illness. His son John was one of many who helped lead a new Lutheran church, one that succeeded with the help of his father Paul Mons. In early 1974, faculty and students at Concordia Seminary here in St. Louis opted to leave the school and form a new seminary. This transpired because of disagreements over church and seminary leadership and over theological debates that had been taking place for some time. David Abrahamson, pastor of St. Luke's Lutheran Church in Chicago, was one of those students, and he tells us a bit about that conflict. In 1974, there's a lot of discussion about what to do, centering around the inquiries, or some would call the inquisition, that was going on by the Seminary Board of Control around uh, President John Teaching. And so when February rolled around and he was suspended, uh, both the student body and the faculty were prepared then uh, to call a moratorium and eventually walk off campus and continue uh, education uh, at St. Louis University, Eden, and uh, uh, getting our diplomas finally from LSTC in Chicago. Mark Bangert, who is eventually the music director of St. Luke's Lutheran in Chicago, was teaching at Concordia at the time. It was at this point that the student body, who was very much involved in all of the shenanigans that were going on over a period of two or three years before that, the student body said, okay, we're not going to classes until you tell us which professors are teaching heresy. And that sort of shut the whole institution down for a month. Uh, I lived on campus in a faculty house on campus, and I was served notice that I had to be out of my house in 30 days, and uh, my job was terminated. So that then caused a kind of symbolic walkout, and which is many times misinterpreted these days by saying we walked off the campus. We would rather say we were kept out of our vocations from the building and we were forced off the campus. Now, because this was nothing new in terms of this uh, developing break with Missouri, there were others who were making preparations against a bad outcome, meaning when President Teacher was suspended, what would, what would the faculty and seminary do? So while it looked like, oh, we just walked off of the campus to St. Louis University, there was work that had gone on very quietly that had this all pretty much wrapped up and ready to go if needed. So some of the myth uh, needs to be replaced with the reality that we didn't, in two months, all of a sudden make arrangements to go to St. Louis University in Eden and whatnot. That had been in the works because there was some thought that, you know, this was going to happen. And uh, so we continued. Obviously, that led to uh, all of them eventually being fired, um, the rest of us being tossed out of, you know, the dorms, either, either come back and behave yourself or get out. So, you know, we all moved out in the spring, found housing somewhere around St. Louis U, and uh, uh, continued education and then graduated with a strange degree that has Lutheran School of Theology and it's awarded in conjunction with the adjunct faculty of Concordia Seminary in exile. Very interesting. And believe it or not, we, we never lost a paycheck. 
I never, I never had to go without a paycheck. At the time, Paul Mons was teaching at Concordia Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota, but he was not unfamiliar to the St. Louis Seminary. He would frequently come down. He'd fly him down for events and for big services. While this was going on, we would frequently have uh, huge services at Christ Church Cathedral. And uh, he would come down and play the Skinner. And uh, he would come elsewhere um, to, to do big services. So he was pretty much connected. He'd be, on, he'd be around maybe three, four times a year. Along the way, he was also doing hymn festivals and had done them in St. Louis and all over. Um, you know, it, it was an ongoing kind of thing as he was introducing uh, this kind of fun experience for people. Scott Hislop studied with Paul Mons and has published a biography of the musician. When a group of faculty and students broke off to form their own um, seminary, one of Paul's sons, John, was part of that. And Paul chose to use the hymn festivals as fundraisers to support um, uh, Christ, Christ Seminary Seminex. Uh, so Paul began going around the country playing hymn festivals as fundraisers through this. And the, the, the Christ Seminary folks had their own PR department and had their own management and that, so they really developed it. So he was playing tons of hymn festivals at that, at that point in time. When we moved to Minneapolis in the fall of 1978, this issue was really, really hot. John Ferguson was a professor at St. Olaf College and director of music at Central Lutheran Church in Minneapolis. At that point in time, Paul had been fired as a professor at Concordia College here in St. Paul, now called Concordia University, but Concordia College, where he was chair of the music department. Um, because his theology wasn't pure. And what that means, I don't know. I am told that the real specific precipitant was his continuing support of his son, who had been going to a Missouri Synod seminary and decided to leave that seminary and join a group of folks who were in what they called the, the seminary in exile, or seminex. And when his son was ordained, Paul played the service, and that was too visible an act for the powers that be at Concordia University, and so Paul was fired. The Missouri Synod Church came down hard on Paul Mons because he was doing hymn festivals all over for other denominations, and um, it was a very sad, sad time. David Sherwin is the current cantor of Mount Olive Lutheran Church in Minneapolis. He was a man of great principle, and... Um, but non-confrontive, you know, he just, this is where I will be, and this is where my commitment lies. But uh, I think they, there was some pretty ugly things that he bumped into, being locked out of uh, an organ because they didn't want him to play, and things that were very hurtful that uh, he would never want to talk about. So, uh, and then the publishing house, who had all his publications, we're not going to reprint his publications anymore and just let the supplies dwindle and be done. And so he had to, as he said, it's not my style, but I had to hire an attorney to get them back. In other words, they had a lawsuit and to get the copyrights back. 
but he did get the copyrights back, and then that's when Morningstar Music Publishers started, where his works could continue to be published. Mark Lawson is president of ECS Publishing Group, which includes Morningstar Music. I think the history of Morningstar really is partly the history of Paul Mons. Rodney Schrank, who was the editor at Concordia when that happened with Paul and Paul was able to get his copyrights back and he was able to get some people from Minnesota to help finance the purchase of the inventory that he needed to get back from Concordia. He did that around the same time that Rodney Schrank was leaving Concordia. So Rodney started Morningstar. It, it owes its life to Paul Mons. It would not have existed, really, I don't think, because starting a publishing company is very, very difficult for composers to want to invest. I always think of composers as being a little bit like our stockholders, because they are putting something into the company, and it's an investment on their part, and hoping that it will pay off for them. So for a composer to do that with a new company is rather, uh, particularly an established composer, it's risky. So for them to see that Paul Mann's things were here, I think gave them the comfort of saying, then mine, I'm going to be okay too, you know, so I'm willing to do that. In the early 2000s, Rodney Schrank, the founder of Morningstar Music, interviewed Paul Mons for a potential biography. Here's Paul Mons himself speaking on one of those recorded interviews. Well, first of all, I would say I'm terribly grateful for the experiences I've had and the support I've had from friends and particularly my family and Ruth. I'm very grateful for that. Without that kind of support, I don't think I could have done too much. But you have to be able to be free as a bird in order to create. And you can't be encumbered with details of, of obligations that you must fulfill in order to do your work, because the more you are encumbered, the less you do. And so I'm very grateful for the friends. Today you've heard the voices of David Sherwin, John Ferguson, Scott Hislop, Mark Bangert, Martin Marty, David Abrahamson, Carol Peterson, Mark Lawson, and Paul Mons. All of the music was performed and improvised by Paul Mons. Of course, this is only a very brief look at the life and work of this composer. There's much more to talk about. All of these interviews were recorded on video as well, so we hope that a longer, more complete presentation will be on the Oregon Media Foundation's YouTube channel soon. You can find our channel and subscribe by going to Oregon.media, and there's a link right at the top of the page. Make sure you're subscribed to our podcast to get updates whenever new episodes are out, usually every Friday. We're on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, just about everywhere you can find podcasts. If you have comments or questions, you can email us at info at attheorgan.com, or you can leave a comment directly on the post for this show at attheorgan.com. Thank you again for listening. You can follow At The Organ and Organ Media on Facebook and Twitter, and Organ Media is on Instagram. I'm Brent Johnson. Thanks for listening, and I'll meet you here next time at The Organ.
You've been listening to At The Organ. We'd love to hear your comments about the show. Send your email to info at attheorgan.com or just go to our website where you can comment on the show. There you can also hear this week's show again or find back episodes. The address is attheorgan.com. At The Organ is a production of the Organ Media Foundation. For more information about supporting the foundation, go to organmedia.org. Thank you for listening, and we'll meet you here next week at The Organ.